Okay. Hi, I'm Debbie Georgiatis. Welcome to my show, America Can We Talk. Today, we're going to talk about a vote in England today, the UK Brexit vote again. We have former UK candidate George Farmer joining me to talk about that election. Impeachment, coup, and the hidden hand. I can't wait to tell you that. And finally, Trump fights BDS, uh, New Jersey Jews murdered same day. And I'll tell you why these stories matter to you. Stay tuned. Debbie Georgiatis, host of America Can We Talk, is an author, attorney, and political analyst whose mission is to inspire the American political conversation about preserving liberty in the best country on earth. America Can We Talk is sponsored by GC Works, a Dallas-based company performing advanced technology research in the oil and <clears throat> gas industry. And hello again and welcome to America Can We Talk and to today's First Five. Today in England, there is a nationwide vote going on in the UK, and this is actually an election for the entire um, House of Parliament, all members of Parliament up for election today. So 650 people uh, will be chosen by the voters today to represent themselves, to represent their country in the House of Commons. And this is, I called it in my captions, a Brexit vote. And it's not really a, a referendum on Brexit directly, but in a way it is a referendum on Brexit. And we're gonna be talking in just uh, a few minutes with a gentleman who's actually uh, was a candidate in, in the UK when he was living there, a UK native. Uh, George Farmer is gonna join us in a moment, but I wanna tell you some interesting things about this vote being held today um, in the UK. Their system a little bit different than ours. This is not, you know, in America, we're kind of, regardless of what happens, we have elections every two years for the entire Congress, uh, every four years for the president. Uh, we have a six-year terms for the Senate, but the, the dates are set. We don't have sudden surprise elections and new elections held with the occasional exception if uh, someone happens to pass on in office or resign, you have to have a special election. But this is the entire equivalent of our Congress being elected, and this is actually today, the I believe it is the fourth vote in five years to again uh, elect the members of the House of Commons. I think, but we're going to ask George Farmer if it's accurate, I think most of this calling for this new vote, this system they have over there that permits this uh, snap vote is related to Brexit, and which was, as you likely recall, the acronym that was a shortening of the British exit from the European Union. A couple of interesting things on the table right now, and then and we'll turn to George in a moment. But one is that if, you know to get the parties' names clear, the equivalents, because it, there are so many parallels between America and in England. But the Labour Party is kind of like the Liberals, and they are headed by Jeremy Corbyn. They have the Tories, uh, kind of like the GOP, uh, headed by Boris Johnson, and the Brexit Party is kind of like the Tea Party, headed by Nigel Farage. The reason I want to mention those parties is they're all playing a role in how the population in England thinks about a lot of issues that they are facing in that country. And very recently, there has been more and more talk among Jewish British citizens very, very concerned about what should, would possibly happen to them if we actually had a victory uh, from by the uh, Labour Party, by Jeremy Corbyn. He is viewed by some, and perhaps not entirely fairly, but he's viewed as anti-Semitic, as not supportive of the Jewish population, a little too friendly and cozy with the Islamic population in England. So he causes them concern. And actually, as an organization, the British Jewish Leadership Council, headed up by Jonathan Goldstein, who's warned that the election of Jeremy Corbyn as prime minister would pose an existential threat to the Jewish community in England. Now, to be clear, what they're voting on today are members of parliament. And they don't 
have the same system as we. So once those that election is made, then that group in turn, the new members of parliament, choose the prime minister. And they, the date for the first um, gathering, the first meeting of the newly elected um, House of Commons is December 17th, the week it's coming up next week. So very quickly they have to regroup pretty clear who they would choose as their leaders, but uh, it's a different system. But the reason I care what I'm talking about on this show related to America is many of the same issues that we face in America uh, are present in the British system, including the apparent unwillingness of people entrenched in power to listen to the people on Brexit and other things. And that, my friends, is today's first five. So we have joining us by phone, as I mentioned earlier, we have George Farmer joining us by phone. He joined us in September, I think it was. I meant to look what the date was, but we had him on with us um, in September. And he actually uh, was active in the UK as a supporter of Brexit. He was a candidate to, he ran for, within the Brexit party, a seat on the European Union Parliament just in case they, we couldn't Brexit or get out of Brexit, then they're going to turn around and say, okay, well, at least we'll have some Brexit-type people, thinkers, that would have ultimately made it on the, on the uh, European Union Parliament. So I think we talked to him at that time. But today, I just think it's the most fascinating thing to watch in England, the, as they say, paralleling battles today, what's happening in the uh, UK elections. So let me start and make sure we have Mr. George Farmer online. Hi, George. Hi, Debbie. What a pleasure it is to be back on your show. Great to have you. Uh, great to just so glad that you're here. And uh, last time, I have to tell you, you were it was when the uh, European Parliament elections were going to happen, and I was taking notes while you were talking because you were so filled with information, not just about England, but parties and organizations and other co member countries of the EU who kind of are looking at can we possibly extract ourselves from the EU. So I love that. Love that. Okay. So let me start with: Is it right that the elections? that were triggered, that are being held today, is Brexit the main issue? Yeah, pretty much. We, um, we're in a position now in the UK where, I think you mentioned this is the, the fourth uh, election we've had. I mean, it, it, that we, this, this will be the third election, the third general election we've had in five years, but the fourth vote we've had in, in five years. So if you recall, 2015, David Cameron who was elected pr Prime Minister with a Conservative Party majority, um, then delivered the Brexit referendum, which we had in 2016, uh, just prior to uh, Mr. Trump becoming President in the United States. And then after that, there was an election called by then um, Theresa May as the next leader of the Conservative Party in 2017. In 2017, she effectively lost the majority that the Conservative Party had in Parliament. And what that has meant is that for the last two and a half years, it's been incredibly difficult to get any legislation through Parliament. And that has included her, the Brexit deal, which uh, was presented to Parliament first and Theresa May, uh, three times was rejected by the, by the House of Commons. And Boris Johnson, who has now revised the deal, made it better in his eyes, and, uh, and in the eyes of the Conservative Party, has presented the deal. It, 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 it didn't get through Parliament. There was, there was really no other choice but to therefore call a general election. And as you rightly said uh, in your little introduction, it's, it it's called a snap election in many ways. But th what this really means is that the next election was scheduled to be in 2022. And because of the impasse in Parliament and the fact that nothing is getting done, he has effectively called the election now to deliver, in one form or another, a majority government which can pass legislation. And that's really what this is all about. Um, so that's what Boris is obviously hoping to seek with the mandate from the British people that he will be getting, hopefully, today. I believe I saw a polling that shows that the Conservative Party is up by 11 points or so. Have you, have you had any sense of how the polling looks in, in the UK? Yeah, I mean, the, the polling... <laughs> The polling is, is, uh, is a complicated thing, and much, like it, much like it was over here. If you look at the, I mean, to give some comparison, the, the polling data in the UK was sort of similar in the way that the polling data was over here. Every poll over here said that Hillary Clinton will become president. Every single, I, I, I don't recall seeing one poll where, where Hillary was not ahead. In the same way that pretty much every poll before the Brexit referendum said that 
we would not leave the European Union, that Brexit would not be voted on. They were both wrong. So there has been a, there has been a substantial change in the way the polling companies have tried to understand the wills and intentions of the people in Britain. Now, what the polls show at the moment is that the Conservative Party has led, in some polls, by anywhere from 18 points and wow. in other polls to 7 points. And so there is, there is a real spread of um, reliability. The most accurate polling, which has consistently tried to put itself forward before the 2017 election, they got the, they got the result pretty much spot on. Before the Brexit referendum, they were the closest to having the right result. The most accurate polling done in the UK has basically said that the Conservatives will probably have a majority, and they will probably have a majority of about 60 seats, which is more than enough to get Boris Johnson's agenda through through Parliament. Okay, but so... it is complicated. Oh my <laughs> gosh, it is. Well, I mean, I guess if you grew up in that uh, country, or that's just what you think government is, so you're used to it. But to Americans, yeah, we have to break it down a little bit. I do want to ask you, though, so with Brexit, I saw that the European Union had again extended the deadline given to the UK yeah. about their withdrawal. So now the deadline is January 31st of 2020, which is coming right up. You know, it's uh, less than two months away that they're going, that's the yeah. deadline. So what, so the British people voted 52 to 48 yeah to leave. I mean, the, the people advocating to leave won. And so that's why Brexit got started. But if you did have the Labour Party win the majority this time, mm -hmm. and so that happened, mm -hmm. where does Brexit stand? Would they have to actually get another referendum of the people in order to take Brexit away? Or, or what would happen if the well, Labour Party won? Yeah, the... So you mentioned three parties when you introduced, and there's there's also a, there's actually a fourth party which is worth mentioning, um, which is called the Liberal Democrats, and they're they're a sort of they're a kind of mix of centrist politicians who have broken away mainly from the Labour Party. Um, now, what would happen? It, it's highly unlikely that the the Labour Party will win the majority it is highly unlikely that will happen in any situation because the labor party it's very, it just really cannot be done by according to the numbers that the polls have been referring to i mean the polls would have to be stratospherically wrong for the labor party to have a majority but what could happen is that you have a unique situation in um well not unique but it is more unusual that we have what's known as a hung parliament and this basically means that no no party wins an outright majority now the British system, the way that the British system is structured, it is similar to the U.S. system, so that basically one party normally governs, right? And that is how it works. Whereas most European parliaments have coalition systems. Now, Britain and America have similar political ideology in, in as much as they both want one party in control. Now, in Britain, there is there is this possibility that you have what's known as a hung parliament, where no party has control. And that is highly unusual, and it happened in 2000. It's been happening more often. It happened in 2010, and uh, the Conservatives went into a coalition with the Liberal Democrats, who basically um, became sort of mini Conservatives. Now, in this situation, if there was a hung Parliament, the likely outcome would be that the Labour Party and the Liberal Democrats would go into coalition. It's highly unlikely that they would uh, that the Liberal Democrats would go into coalition with the Conservatives. And in that situation, you have two different Brexit ideologies which are competing. So the Labour Party's position on Brexit is incredibly confused. They really have no clear strategy of what they want to do there. They have said that they will go back to Brussels, renegotiate a new deal, come back to the British people, present the British people with this new deal, which they claim they will be able to get, which is highly unlikely. Um, then they will present the new deal in a referendum to the people again, mm -hmm. and they and they would campaign to remain at the same time. So their position is logically you have to perform some serious mental gymnastics to understand exactly where their position is. Basically, they would have a new deal which they would campaign against in another referendum, um, and the Liberal Democrats want to overturn Brexit altogether. Now, most people in the country do not support the Liberal Democrats position because the Liberal Democrats are polling on about 14% and they 
they've been losing votes because most people in Britain, whether they voted leave or remain inside the, inside the European Union, they recognise that the democracy of the country is at stake. So if we revoke Article 50, which is the, which is the Article 50 of the Lisbon Treaty to leave the European Union, they recognise that this would be highly damaging for British democracy because effectively what would be being said is that in 2016 you made the wrong choice, here you are again, please choose the right option. Um, and that is not a position that most people want to be in. So if Labour win the, win the election, or at least go into this hung parliament position where they could go into a coalition, it's really then, what do, what do the Labour Party do about the Liberal Democrats' position to revoke Article yeah. 50? So that, it, it's actually, it would then become a, I mean, that poss- it is a possibility, it's a slim possibility, but we will, we will, we will have to see. And I would be very surprised if the Labour Party could realistically say to its own voters, we are going to revoke Article 50, because a lot of Labour Party voters, you know, it's exactly like Trump in America. Brexit was like Trump in America, and this is, you know, when we had our yes. conversation, <laughs> you know, it's, it's exactly the same. You know, the, 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 it divides Democrats and Republicans. You know, it's, it's not Trump... Trump draws ideologies, you know, he, his reformation of NAFTA under the USMCA, you know, that was a Democrat policy for many years. And he is, he is championing the rights of American workers, which traditionally, if you wound the clock back to 50 years, was something that, um, you know, the Democrat Party believed in. Now the Democrat Party over here seem to believe in, I'm not really sure what they seem to believe in anymore, but, but the point being is that... I have a few words. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But, you know, they, 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 Brexit is the same. It, 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 both people from the left and the right voted for Brexit. It, wasn't, it was really patriot versus globalist in the same way that Trump is patriot versus globalist. And, and that is why it would be very dangerous for the Labour Party to abandon the five million people who voted for them and voted for Brexit. Absolutely true. And I love that patriot versus globalist. So now, suppose, I, I just want to... I mean, where you are with Brexit is the people said yes, they want to leave. You had an inability to get the details negotiated in a palatable way, at least by Theresa May, what she presented the House of Commons would not accept, and other, uh, and I've forgotten how many iterations it went, but I want to get you right now. So suppose that we have an election as it, you, it sounds like the polls are saying will happen. You do have the Tories win. They do put Boris Johnson in as prime minister. What does he have to do I mean, is, is it set so he could just let the clock run out till January 31st, 2020, and, and, and they're out? Or is he still going to be trying to negotiate some other provisions that, by which you actually no. execute the Brexit? No, so if, if Boris wins the majority, um, we, we, are, we are leaving actually possibly even before the 31st of January. Um, so he has been... He, once Britain is... A, <laughs> There's an old term in the British um, political constitution which basically says that Britain is an elected dictatorship. Um, we're, we're, every five years, the British population decide who's going to be their leader. But once you have the majority in Parliament, you can basically do anything you want. And, um, and Boris Johnson, if he has a majority, has already got the deal. He will, he will, get his, he will make sure that his MPs, his members of Parliament, vote for his deal and the deal will pass, and then we will leave. And, that, and that's, the, that's what he's campaigned on, that's what he said, and that's very clear, that every MP who is being elected to the Houses of Parliament on a Conservative ticket is going to vote for the deal. So he's actually trying to speed up our exit before the 31st of January. So he has basically said that if he has a majority, he will try and get us out even sooner, um, so maybe even before the end of the year. You know, even his hair kind of looks like Donald Trump. But anyway, back to Boris Johnson. <laughs> <laughs> a true story. So is it accurate that if this all occurs, as you just laid out, the House of Lords has no ability to veto this, or they do have a role, the House of Lords? Yeah, the House of, the House of Lords is a bit of an, anachron, um, sort of an anachronistic chamber. I mean, it, it, it doesn't really have any power to veto it, no. I mean, it, it has... No, it really doesn't. Anything, anything which the House of Lords votes down can, can, be, can be passed by the House of Commons again. So, I mean, it, okay. it, 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 there, there, is no, there is no limiting factor in the House of Lords. Okay. 
George Farmer, I have to tell you, it's so fun. I actually really enjoy learning about the UK system. <laughs> I actually enjoy watching. I, I'm such a, a student of our American, you know, Democratic Republic and our systems and our elections. And I think it's so interesting to watch from afar in England because you really can distill down the the big blocks of thinking. You use the terms the globalist mindset versus, I would say, just the patriot, the person who loves their country, yeah, wants their country to be a country. So. I love watching it. I love how parallel Brexit is really to the mindset of many people in America about pulling out of, you know, the uh, socialist globalist mindset that seems to be have taken hold in so many quarters in the, in the world and certainly the European Union and reasserting the value, the dignity, the, the love of their country as, as President Trump is doing here. So thank you for Absolutely. that. Thank you so much for joining us. It was great to talk with you. No worries. Thanks, Debbie. Okay, take care, sir. Bye-bye. I want to tell you two other, two other quick things about the election over there that are so interesting in parallel um, to uh, what we are watching in our country. One is the, you know, let's call them the Democrats, but it's really the left in the UK, uh, which is the um, Jeremy Corbyn's party, the Labour Party. One is, I mentioned this anti-Semitism thing. I'm going to uh, talk about a story a little later today. We're going to have to give in and talk about the impeachment uh, ongoing efforts in Washington, but I'll get to this story later. But this anti-Semitism is on the rise in the UK. It's on the rise in this country. And there is within that mindset of leftism, and I am, I'm always trying to break politics down, not so much into, you know, one party name, Democrat versus Republican, but worldview, how you see the world, how you see the role of government. Leftism, whether it's in England or in America or other places, it is driven by the mission to gain power over people. That's what leftism is all about, to distill down. It's about the idea that government's job is to pretty much be in charge of and control everything. And so they're always gathering more in taxes, gathering more of money from the individuals who work, from the businesses who produce products and services, taking it in because they want to be the leftist mindset is we control the people, we decide what's what. And the conservative view is we really respect the individual and the right of the individual to live in freedom. And we, so, and we respect the idea of the individual to conduct his or her own affairs. And the government doesn't have a role running everything in your life. It's the same thing in the UK and here and all over the world. But on Jeremy Corbyn, number one about this anti-Semitism, you know, from the beginning, from Bible times, there has been intolerance of the Jewish people, intolerance of, of Judaism as a faith. We had an entire monstrous uh, episode in the Holocaust in World War II, give, just giving, you know, just, it was a, a major explosion of anti-Semitic hate that happened inside Germany. I'm not blaming all leftists for the Holocaust. I am going to say that there is a mindset on the on leftist thinking that is intolerant of earnest, sincere, deep faith. It's just an element of what leftism is because the more people in a country have a deep and earnest faith, the more they are they the individuals live their lives in accordance with what their faith tells them what they learn from their faith. Leftism finds deep faith an obstruction to their ability to control people. It is, you know, in, the, in America today, you know, the anti-American left we have in this country are the ones regularly denouncing the right of individual business owners, individual people and pastors and people in churches to have a view of marriage consistent with what they think the scriptures teach. There is an intolerance of the belief and faith in God that lives in the left-wing mindset. Intolerance for God, intolerance for faith is having any serious place or role in society. Utterly the opposite of conservatism, which respects the individual, which take, goes to the effort to give the maximum ability of the individual to live his or her life in accordance with their faith. And so, what you have in Jeremy Corbyn in England, you have happening here. You have Jeremy Corbyn, the leader of the 
Democrats or the Labor Party has made numerous statements over the years and some of the statements are coming back and being replayed in the media in the UK basically saying that they're intolerant of Judaism they blame Israel they blame Israel for in fact Jeremy Corbyn had a speech in 2015 I think it was where he basically sounded like he was saying that Israel and the Jews are more responsible for terrorism in this world than jihadists than Muslim terrorists. I mean, the, uh, the factual absurdity, the factual claim is absurd, but it really it reveals that underlying mindset. There's just an anti-Semitism that weaves its way, not into every left-wing person, but it's a core intolerance of God that lives in the mind of a leftist whose main mission is to gain power over people. So Jeremy Corbyn, a lot of anti-Semitic sounding statements, a lot of statements sounding very sympathetic toward uh, jihadists. He actually has spoken of Hamas and Hezbollah, which are murderous terrorist jihadists, Islamic jihadist terror organizations, spoken of them as friends, spoken of the uh, denouncing Israel in large part for defending itself as it is attacked by its surrounding neighbors. So now, as you heard me mention in the beginning of the show, Jeremy Corbyn has, is dealing with the fact that there are people in England who are urging their fellow Jewish citizens of England, of the UK, you cannot vote for Jeremy Corbyn. You can't vote for the Labour Party. We'll have to leave England if he wins. It's that serious and their sense of intolerance of faith. You know, England, along with Western Europe, is becoming more and more secular and less and less, um, you know, inclined to treat religion seriously, less and less to have, attend regular worship services, all that kind of stuff. And so the secularism, uh, or secular ideas as core ideas of the, of the society, they find their home not just in England, but throughout Western Europe, and that feeds the leftism and the intolerance for people of actual genuine religious faith. So, very, very big deal. Oh, there's also a big deal in this election because there has been, have been complaints about the British healthcare system. And you likely know that Brits have the, uh, you know, socialized medicine. I mean, you are just stuck in their system, uh, and I mean, you're stuck in their system to summarize where you are. Unless you're extremely wealthy, you can go somewhere else or find a private uh, care hospital or physician. And people have been complaining about the healthcare system because it's extremely expensive. They have, you know, it's socialized medicine, uh, you know, to beat the ban. People complain about how long they have to wait to see a doctor, how long they have to wait for non-emergency surgery, you know, just the poor care, the overcrowded conditions. And the conservative government saying, well, yeah, you know, we can't, this is the most we can afford given what we collect in taxes. And Jeremy Corbyn, true to form of so many leftists, is running on the platform to end austerity. He's saying, don't worry, we'll just start providing more free things. He's running very much like a Democrat in America, a leftist in America, running on, let us give you free things. Don't worry. If you give the leftists the power, they will collect more in taxes and they'll magically transform this already bloated uh, system in England, the socialized medicine system that is not able to meet the needs of the people, that the people are complaining about, and instead of going for reforms like freeing up the, you know, just stranglehold control the healthcare system has, the uh, government-controlled healthcare system has in England, instead of freeing that up and accommodating more and more private healthcare and more and more ability to buy private health insurance and pursue private healthcare, that is never an answer that's okay with the leftist. The leftist is always going to say, no, just well, let, let us collect more money in taxes. Let us get more control over um, the healthcare system. More money into it is never, ever the idea occurs to them to actually think about returning to some free market-based, patient-controlled, doctor-controlled uh, healthcare system. It's always given. So that's a big issue over there, too, is Jeremy Corbyn saying, re-elect me and we'll end austerity. We'll spend lots more money on the healthcare system. So very parallel to America, very interesting. We'll talk about next week how the election comes out. The next thing I want to hit on today, um, I call it the hidden hand, and this is actually a broader um, thing that it relates to where we are in impeachment. And as I walked in the studio today, you know, I walked in this, where I'm sitting today, I walked through the main area and they have big television screens on with different um, stations and they're showing the hearings in the House Judiciary Committee. 
today is debating the articles of impeachment. This is just the committee, the House Judiciary Committee, and they're apparently going to vote today on the two articles of impeachment that they came up with after, you know, just as you know, torturous year, months, years of talking about impeachment, months of, of bringing on witness after witness. But I want to really tell you some very, very important points about where we are in this. So this is just the Judiciary Committee is expected to pass these articles of impeachment along party lines and then go to the floor of the House next week. Number one, there is talk now that somewhere between 21 and 34 and maybe more Democrat members of the U.S. House are now saying they cannot vote for impeachment. Now, you know, Nancy Pelosi would like nothing more than to have a lockstep you know, Democrats voting for impeachment and Republicans obviously voting against. Now, she's known all along that some Democrats have a really hard time voting for impeachment because they live in areas where they have informed citizens who can see there's no basis to impeach this president, areas where President Trump carried the area or is at least now polling where he's popular and people think impeachment is wrong. So there was always some concern that you, she wouldn't have all the Democrats. But now there's talk about more and more Democrats starting to bail out on her. And I got to tell you, Nancy Pelosi runs the U.S. House, runs the Democrats in the U.S. House like a drill sergeant. She tells them how they will vote. They, the Democrat members, must get her permission to vote in any way other than how she tells them to vote. When you see people coming home and saying, well, I want to hear from my constituents, you know, members of Congress, I want to hear what you think, I'm open. You know, it, it's all hogwash. It's all a show. It's a charade. She may have to tell certain members when they come to her and say, I'm going to lose my seat if I vote for impeachment. So you need to let me out of this. She may say yes. But do not think for a moment these individual Democrats have any actual authority within their party to vote the way they want to vote. She's in control of it. But she's getting worried now. As I say, up to 34 and maybe more Democrats are saying, I don't want to vote for impeachment. Number two, there is a, um, there is a um, concern among these same Democrats who are you know, rumored to be getting very concerned that they don't want to vote impeachment because they're listening to their voters. But on the other side, in their other ear, in their other inner shoulder, is the devil whispering, which is in the form of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and the other, you know, ladies who are just the squad, the, the radical leftists, the squad, they're socialists, they're, they're just, you know, horrible big government leftist thinkers. Those people are telling these same members of Congress, you know, we're going to find someone to primary you in the states where the primary deadline has not passed. Here in Texas, it's done. The primary deadline's over. But in other states, people could still file. And so at AOC, mainly spearheading, is going around looking for other people to challenge any Democrat who dares to not vote with impeachment. She, AOC, also wanted... She also wanted to have many, many more articles of impeachment. She's livid. They only came up with two. So that's their problem. That's, that's a kind of issue one and issue two, I guess. But also, yesterday in the Senate, there was a hearing. I have a clip for the very wonderful. And I'm gonna, yesterday, I'm going to tell you, my very fine friends who are listening, I was mispronouncing. I have a substitute producer here today uh, because Matt is out this week. And I was calling him Travis. His name is actually Trelvis. I'm going to say it correctly. Trelvis here, I believe, has a clip, which is Ted Cruz, which is the senator from the great state of Texas. You know, great guy. And he actually was able to ask questions yesterday of the Inspector General, Michael Horowitz. So we talked about the IG report yesterday. Michael Horowitz put out his report where he found literally countless examples of the ways in which inside the FBI and the Department of Justice, as they were looking at some way to get President Trump, that they violated law, they violated procedure, they doctored documents, they changed documents to back their efforts. They literally engaged in an extraordinary effort to be sure to somehow be able to attack President Trump and bring about this impeachment hearing, this process. But he, Horowitz, concluded he didn't really see any evidence of bias. That is the hidden hand argument. I'm going to get you in a moment. But first, I want to play the very great Senator Ted Cruz with a stellar question to Michael Horowitz in the U.S. Senate yesterday. 
So the men and women at home need to know what's happening. A lawyer at the FBI creates fraudulent evidence, alters an email. That is in turn used as the basis for a sworn statement to the court that the court relies on. Am I stating that accurately? Uh, that's correct. That is what occurred. Now you. Okay. So you got to understand, guys, this is just a stellar moment. Ted Cruz, fabulous lawyer. I might play that again, but right now, not right now. Uh, he's a fabulous lawyer. He is a, you know, a very incisive speaker. Very, you know, he's, he's actually studied what the IG report says. It's really important to understand what he just got that guy to admit. So the guy says, yeah, you know, they, they, a lawyer for the FBI. So this, this actually may be a crime, like maybe a felony, changing evidence to get your way, but points that out. And Horowitz says, yeah, that's what happened. Yeah. Okay. Another great line that came out of yesterday, I want to give credit to uh, Senator Josh Hawley. Um, Hawley, H-A-W-L-E-Y, Senator Hawley. I don't have the clip, but he also in the same hearing said on, you know, in his, his turn to speak, the collusion that we're looking at here was between the DNC, the Democrat National Committee, and the FBI. He's, he's really trying to connect, rightfully so, the Democrats and the FBI, pointing out what, this, what happened there was simply unbelievable. So that testimony was wonderful. Okay, there are two articles I want to urge you to read. If you go to my website, americacanwetalk.org, on the home page under shows, drop down list of links, two articles I cannot urge you strong enough to read. One is an article about William Barr. And, you know, I played a short clip from Attorney General Barr yesterday or a couple days ago, a short clip of one of his interviews. Attorney General Barr has been out there in Washington in interviews saying, essentially, this is outrageous. I am, these, I am, these aren't his words. These are my words. He spelled out in two different interviews an astonishing number of conclusions and observations about the, what was found in the Horowitz report and about what he's uncovering as he, as well as uh, U.S. Attorney Durham, are finding as they are again investigating, continuing to investigate the predicate, the beginning, what cause this whole Trump-Russia collusion hoax to get kicked off inside the FBI and the DOJ and probably the CIA. Those entities are what he's looking at and he, Barr, so the article I want, I urge you to read is called William Barr has suddenly become chatty and he's provided quite an information dump. So I will not read you all the conclusions, but these are these conclusions. There are 17 of them, I think. Um, no, more than 17. They're conclusions. They're statements that Barr has said in the last two mega interviews where he's really, really calling into question the integrity of the FBI, Department of Justice. And, uh, and therefore, that kind of leads me to my um, hidden hand point I want to make. And this is the other article I cannot urge you strongly enough to read. It's called The Hidden Hand. Again, there's a link at my website, americacanwetalk.org. Uh, it's an article called The Hidden Hand. It's by Charles Sam Fadis, or F-A-D-D-E-S. And he's just making a point that I really want to, it goes back to Horowitz and his inability to get to a conclusion. If you line up all of the things that Inspector General Horowitz found that he laid out in his report. You know, when the report first came out, you had many, many on the left saying, see, see, Horowitz said there was absolutely no, uh, there's nothing, no wrongdoing. He sees no evidence of bias. He saw no evidence of bias that, you know, that there was anything wrong with the initiation, the beginning of this whole Trump-Russia collusion. So the left was trying to say Horowitz has vindicated the entire FBI and DOJ. Now, he maybe finds some, you know, nitpicking little wrongdoing. But the longer this report is out there, the more people read it, you begin to understand what Horowitz, Inspector General Horowitz, uncovered was not simply, you know, poor punctuation. It was not simply, you know, forgot a tiny little step in a procedural process. It was fundamental distortion and misleading of the FISA court, fundamental profound level unfairness and w with respect to how President Trump was treated and how his whole campaign was treated. And this hidden hand 
article is by a guy who's actually formerly served. I don't know exactly where he served, but he talks about having uh, as someone who has a great deal of experience in military and intelligence matters. He's making the point, in summary, there's no way all of these things happened, all of these missteps, all these things happened that we know are wrong. There had to have been someone orchestrating it at the top. There had to have been someone saying, this is what we're going to do. We're going to get President Trump. We're going to plant evidence. We're going to plant the story of Papadopoulos and his offhand conversation that ultimately led to a report made to the FBI in June of 2016 that allegedly caused the beginning of the whole investigation. He points out, and I, I honestly, if I had three hours, I might read you this three-page article. I won't do that, but I urge you to read it. He's making the point, all of this did not happen without somebody at the inception orchestrating it, planning it, and then trying to launch it forth to happen through the various individuals who actually work for the FBI, through the attorneys, the investigators, everyone working for the FBI. And so he's pointing out, too, that some of the missteps we see that Inspector General Horowitz came up with, these are just because the people who got involved, they really didn't, you know, they, they didn't know at some point, and maybe they never did, but they didn't know the, the invisible hand, the whole big plan that was always there. They took at face value what they were handed to do, so they went out and they marched on their way and they looked into things and they, they tried to come out a couple times saying, hey, this doesn't add up. None of this adds up. Carter Page is not a bad guy. He's one of us. You know, uh, George Papadopoulos is not a bad guy. He's, I mean, they came back with these kind of things. And so the invisible hand up here, which I will say, I think is, if there is to be one person, is John Brennan. I am speculating. It appears it was John Brennan. He's, his whole, uh, you know, conduct and aura since the moment this story became a big story of wild, irrational anger and accusation at President Trump. He's a person who had the ability to orchestrate it and the means and the knowledge and the people and how you work the FBI to be duped into doing this. He would be the one, although he's not named in this article, he would be the one who would, could be the hidden hand orchestrating it all. So this guy makes some really brilliant points, including taking into account some of the missteps that happened along the way because these people didn't really realize. They thought they were just doing their job. I'm not talking about Comey and the high-level people. I think Comey and Strzok and Page and um, McCabe, a lot of those people knew exactly what they were doing. But the lower-level field agents, the investigators, the lawyers, they're just doing the job they do. And they were coming back saying, hey, this is ridiculous. There's nothing here. Why are we doing this? But they end up with... Um, you know, with, with, anyway, end up being stuck, uh, having to continue because it was decided by the hidden hand that we are exactly uh, actually going to move forward. One last story before I go to why these stories matter to you. One last quick story. Uh, it deals with anti-Semitism. I made some remarks earlier in this show, and I'll say it again, that within leftism, I'm not talking about all Democrats. I'm not talking about liberals. I mean, there are liberals in the Democrat Party. I'm talking about the hardcore leftists in this world, and there are millions of them, and there are, you know, a few million in America. Hardcore leftists, they find the idea of genuine, earnest, heartfelt, religious faith, offensive, obnoxious, unbearable. They can't stand the idea. George Soros would be the king of anti-American leftists, the king of leftists, deplores religion, funds organizations that deplore religion and people of faith. Mock, ridicule, and destroy religion is the mission of, among many, of the Soros entities in this world. So leftism, at its core, is about giving humans power to control each other, agreeing that a small cabal of people needs to run the world, you know, this, the whole globalist socialist mindset, the whole Soros world of thinking, that's who's supposed to run the world. And these crazy people who have deep and, you know, genuinely held faith stand in their way because many people of faith will not simply salute to everything the left-wing government tells them to think and do. People of faith actually believe in what they believe in. 
and they want to live it. And they are grateful to live in a country like America where we're founded on religious freedom, where we honor it. So on the stories of anti-Semitism, there's a just relentlessly growing on America's college campuses, this BDS movement, B as in boy, BDS movement. Boycott, divest, sanction. It is a cover for virulent, hateful anti-Semitism, just hate of the Jewish people. But it's got political cover because it's allegedly based on the conduct and history of the state of Israel, the country of Israel. So the BDS movement is growing on college campuses and President Trump yesterday decided to attack that growing BDS, you know, just dedication to anti-Semitism disguised as, as, you know, we're just complaining about Israel's decisions and this or that. President Trump decided to um, talk about that and he issued an executive order, Title VI, which is federal funding for, um, for universities and schools and the federal funding, uh, he's basically including the anti-Semitism uh, as something that can be enforced uh, under Title VI. He, that you can have Title VI that is supposed to be in there protecting against discrimination based on race and, and uh, race and skin color and national origin, whatever the categories are. President Trump is saying we need to include anti-Semitism in that. And so this has really rattled the left because they don't like it. There was actually, most unfortunately yesterday, in New Jersey, an attack on a uh, Jewish, a, a kosher grocery store, pure, unadulterated, anti-Semitic hate, two people, open fire inside in the in new jersey open fire inside a kosher grocery store i believe they killed three people who uh, worked there and there's one officer was killed outside the event he he actually saw the uh event as before it unfolded and tried to report the van that he could see was going to happen and they they killed him but the idea that in america we are trending toward anti-semitism that we have the slightest tolerance for anti-semitism must be stopped i want to make two more points before we turn to why it matters to you one is tomorrow friday and every friday i send out my weekly email if you're watching this on youtube i have many many subscribers on youtube if you're watching this on facebook if you are listening to it or watching it on twitter please join my email list you get one email a week and the beauty of it is two things you get links to all the stories i talked about so i can send you you know links to every story we talk about every interview um, and the second reason i love if you would subscribe is because it's an easy way to share my show an easy way to forward my show to your friends and say hey this is the show i like here's the weekly email take a look so to sign up for the email you can go to my website americacanwetalk.org americacanwetalk.org and on the home page just subscribe button you hit subscribe you put in your email and you're done I only send one email a week and I never share those emails with anyone love to have you subscribe second point I want to make before we turn to why it matters to you is this this show is entirely donor funded I've done this show over five years moved it here to this podcast studio a year ago before that I did it in Salem radio it's entirely funded by listeners and, and subscribers. If you can help me and support this show, I cannot tell you how much I would appreciate that. We want to keep this show on air for the rest of my life. And certainly through you know, really going strong in 2020, leading up to the presidential election. But I do mean, I want to do this show as long as I'm here, here on earth, I'm going to do this show. But we actually really need your help. This is a, I've never been paid a penny for all of the preparation, all the shows I do, and there's a very easy way to donate to help me with the show. You can go to the website, americacanwetalk.org, click on the donate button. You can make a recurring donation, which is extremely helpful, you know, once a month and pick your amount or a one-time donation. But in addition to helping defray the costs of this show, which are, you know, which are significant, it also, I'd like to begin to be able to use more formal advertising means to spread this show. 
all of the, this show has grown organically because people like you listen and like it and share it. I would like to begin to be able to use professional marketing to grow the show through social media, through all the means these brilliant marketers have that I don't know, but that's another reason I'm really hoping you consider making a donation to support this show, America Can We Talk. And now I'll tell you why the stories we talked about today matter to you. And so we have, I believe, the very great Trelvis. Okay, America, can we talk for today? We have the UK Brexit vote, that very wonderful George Farmer was on. The grip of the ruling class, secular elitism in power, is being blasted throughout the world. This is a major positive upheaval for those who value God-given individual freedom. In America, it's the election of Donald Trump and 20,000-plus people, Trump rallies in 2019. In the UK, it's the election of Prime Minister Boris Johnson and today's second Brexit vote. It is a monumental, consequential struggle. It's a war, and it's not won or lost yet. The UK voted for Brexit three years ago. The ruling class has succeeded in blocking it since. The U.S. voted for Drain the Swamp three years ago. The ruling class is still resisting. Americans must stand for their heritage of freedom, and so must the Brits. On impeachment, the coup and the hidden hand, the overwhelming and damning weight of the IG report is finally dawning on the country, not the spin. There has been criminal wrongdoing at the highest national security and law enforcement officials at the level of those people of America. The American CIA, FBI, DOJ deliberately interfered with, meddled in the 2016 U.S. election in favor of Hillary Clinton and against Donald Trump and subsequently attempted a coup against the duly elected president, Donald Trump. It is that simple, and it is that unequivocal. No clean house ever can be too sweeping. No member of the cabal perpetrating this should be given a pass. Who deserves maximum accountability? The hidden hand points to the CIA. you got to read that article. And then Trump's fighting BDS and New Jersey had Jews murdered for no reason other than being Jewish. A rise in anti-Semitism has never been a positive sign for any society. The New Jersey murders this week were all about anti-Semitism, Jew hatred. President Trump signed an executive order to fight anti-Semitism on U.S. campuses to counter the BDS movement that is anti-Semitism by a more polite name. Hatred of Jews is basically, simply, a proxy for hatred of God. America was founded with a reverence for divine providence or God. That's why anti-Semitism has historically been understood as out of place in America. Anti-Semitism must be treated like white supremacy is treated in this country. It has no place in this precious country. And that, my friends, is my show for today, America Can We Talk. Tune in every Monday through Thursday, 3 p.m. Central Time, where I come every single day to talk about the unique, extraordinary greatness of this precious country. I speak up for America because America matters. I'll talk to you next time. Can We Talk? Truth about America.